0: So Josh landed with something last week. He kind of started to scratch the surface on this topic of forgiveness, and I want to continue that topic, uh, but, but to use it as kind of an illustration, um, how many of you guys have ever drank or, or drunk or drink or drink or whatever however you want to say it, have, have ever drank out of a Gatorade bottle like this? The one with like this, the slurp spout on the top. Okay, raise your hands high. Come on, let me see my Gatorade lovers. All right, awesome. The first time I was introduced to this bottle was in high school. And I was a high school uh, athlete. I played baseball and soccer. But I grew up in Alabama, which is the armpit of the United States in terms of heat and temperature where it's like 100 degrees and 1,000% humidity every day. It's, it's awful. And so we were in summer workouts, and I remember seeing one of my friends get this bottle right here, and after doing some wind sprints and stuff, saw him drink from this bottle, and it looked so cool, because he didn't just like grab it with his mouth and put his mouth on it. He actually, at the end of the the, the, the workout, he tilted it up, extended it away from him, and squeezed it into his mouth. It was awesome. I was like, whoa, that was really cool. I've got to get one of those bottles, and so the next day, I stopped by the gas station. And I grabbed one of those bottles. But I didn't want to, um, like, practice for the first time while I was out on the field. You know, I didn't want that to be the first time I did this because I didn't want one of those dumb and dumber moments. You know, it's like right over my face kind of thing. And so I practiced it. I went up, you know, grabbed the refrigerator, found the bottle, went and purchased it, you know, and then walked out and started to walk to my car. And I, you know, I, I, I start to open up this part right here, and I extend the bottle out, and I squeeze it, and nothing comes out. And I'm like, what is a defective bottle? What is going on, right? So try it again. You know, maybe it's just me, whatever. so squeeze it, nothing comes out. And so I march back into the convenience store, and I slam the bottle back on the register desk, and I go, hey, this is a defective bottle. Can you give me my money back? And the guy just kind of looks at me, and he gives me this, like, smug stare, starts to unscrew the cap, and he reveals to me in a very snarky way the same thing many of you guys know that there is a seal that is blocking the contents from getting into my body. And I started thinking about that. You know, this, this, is, this would have provided a lot of refreshment for me, a lot of satisfaction. I mean, I could even imagine these grandiose ideas of like going to the, the field and like sweating the blue, you know what I'm talking about, from the Gatorade. Like, this could have, but it, there was something blocking it from really the contents getting inside of me. And I was thinking about this in terms of our walk with Jesus and our faith. And I believe there is one major topic that keeps us from really experiencing truly the fulfillment and satisfaction that Jesus has for us. You you see, my my wife and I, we lead this ministry called Nothing is Wasted Ministries, where we take people through a course called the Pain to Purpose Course. And there's 10 waypoints to help people go from their pain to purpose, but the third waypoint is the waypoint everybody gets stuck on. Inevitably, as they're walking through it, they're going to get stuck in this one particular topic, this one seal, if you will, that inhibits them from fully experiencing the purpose that God has for them, paralyzes them from purpose, and that one seal, that one topic, perhaps is something that you're wrestling with today, and it's the topic of bitterness and unforgiveness, in life we will have things done to us, said to us, we will experience offense, and that offense can begin to build a layer over our heart, a seal over our heart that will clog us from being able to experience everything God has for us. And I want to address that topic today. Jesus addressed the topic as well. If you go to Matthew chapter 18, that's where we're going to camp out. And, um, and, and Jesus was asked this question by one of the disciples in Matthew chapter 18. It says, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? He says, up to seven times. Now, can we pause for just a second? I think it's really ironic that Peter is the one asking him this question. No doubt, Peter comes to him because somebody has said something or done something to him. He's taken offense to it. And and, and Peter, um, he probably had people in his life that were difficult to love. He actually asked about his brother. Now, his real brother was one of the disciples Andrew and so maybe he was talking about his actual brother you know Jesus you know Andrew and Andrew did this thing and how many times do I have to forgive him he keeps sinning against me keeps like hurting me or he could have just been talking about an acquaintance or a neighbor or friend or whatever it is but I also I just think it's funny that Peter's the one asking this because Peter was a pretty difficult person to love you got people in your life that are difficult to love like the, like the close talker after church, after they've had too much coffee and they don't have a mint. You know what I'm talking about? And you're like, oh, hey, <laughs> tic-tac. Like, like the people who just like stay around when you invite them over to dinner and they just stay there. And they have no like sense of savoir-faire on, okay, it's time to leave. Even if you come back out to the living room in your underwear going, okay, I'm going to bed. You're turning the lights out. They're still sitting there. You know those people, everybody's got difficult people in their lives to love, and you might be like Davey, I don't have anybody in my life that's difficult to love. Guess what? You're the one, right? <laughs> Egrs, we call them extra grace required. You know what I mean? This is Peter. Peter is a difficult person to love. He used to. He would. He would speak before he would think. He would always put his word like his foot in his mouth. He was like the cussing disciple, calling down curses. At one point, Jesus looked at him and said, "Get behind me, Satan." Now, when the Son of God calls you Satan, trump card, you're difficult to love, okay? So Peter's asking Jesus, how many times do I forgive? And he says, he he like goes the extra mile, up to seven times. Because the, the rabbinical teaching of the day was that you forgave somebody three times. Three was the number that represents in Scripture community or relationship. And if someone inflicted pain or offense onto you more than three times, now you could cut them off or sever them from the community. That was the traditional teaching of the day. Jesus, or Peter goes, well, I know, Jesus, you're like over the top about these things, so up to seven times do I do this? And Jesus answers something with something very, very interesting. He says this. He says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, I find this odd because he answers a quantitative question with another quantitative answer. So what does this mean? He's just saying, okay, no, let's up the ante a little more. Just kind of give some grace a little bit more. Is this really a quantitative Like, Like we teach our kids, hey, if, if you wrong somebody, say you're sorry. And if someone wrongs you and they say they're sorry, say, okay, I forgive you. Does that mean that Weston, like he should keep a tally board in his room, my son? Like when his sister wrongs him at like number 76, he's like waiting for it. And then he checks off number 76. That's the last time. That's it. After that, I can't. No, what what is this? What is Jesus saying right here with 77 times? Well, the original Jewish reader would have, or the listener would have heard this, and it would have been this major paradigm shift. When Jesus let these words out, they would have gone, whoa. Because Jesus is referencing something that took place in the very beginning of time, the origins of the earth. The first humans that, that were ever created were Adam and Eve, and they had sons named Cain and Abel. You guys remember the story of Cain and Abel. Cain got jealous of Abel, and so he killed, he murdered Abel. And then he gets really concerned that somebody's going to try to take vengeance on his murder. because, Because that's what human nature does, doesn't it? Someone offends you, and you begin to concoct this idea of vengeance. How do I get them back? How do I repay them? So he gets concerned about this. And he tells God, and God does something really weird. I don't quite understand it. I've got a lot of questions about the Bible, too. But he puts this blessing over Cain, and, and it says this in Genesis 4, 15. The Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him. Look, how many times? Sevenfold. Kind of a reminder there. Hey, Jesus, how many times? Should I forgive seven times? It says, the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone found him and should attack him. Well, in, later in that chapter in Genesis 4, it talks about generations beginning to unfold. And six generations later, after Cain, there is a man born from the descendants of Cain named Lamech. Interestingly enough, six is the number that represents human effort and also represents sin. So six generations after Cain comes this man Lamech, and this is what it says in Genesis chapter 4, verse 23. Lamech said to his wives... Problem right there, he's got two wives, okay? <laughs> a lot of drama means two mother-in-laws, okay? You know, just <laughs> It says, Ada and Zilha, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Can we just, okay, he's addressing himself in third person. That's a character right there, right? wives of Lamech. You know, like, <laughs> I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Do you see this theme? Some guy came to me, he wounded me, he struck me, he offended me, so I killed him. Don't miss what's going on here. Cain opens up this portal of vengeance and killing and pain and perpetration and sin, and then six generations later, it's continuing to perpetuate. I need you to hear me say that pain, by itself in default, will perpetuate pain. Unless you and I let God transform our pain, we will inevitably transfer it onto other people. And it will begin to increase and exponentially grow generationally. This is what happens right here. But Lamech tries to put a blessing on himself by saying, if Cain's revenge, verse 24, is sevenfold, Lamech's is what? Seventy-sevenfold. Do you see the connection here now? Jesus then in Matthew 18 says, No, Peter, here's the deal. A long time ago with Cain and Abel, there was this thing that began to unravel in the origins of this sphere and this realm that we don't necessarily see but we can perceive. There is a kingdom thing going on here. There is a spiritual battle that's taking place between good and evil. And evil's going to continue to try to perpetuate. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse as the generations go. Unless, Peter, you stop it. Unless you do something so radically upside down and you confront this bitterness with forgiveness. So you don't fight fire with fire. It just makes the fire grow. You fight fire with water. You don't fight bitterness and unforgiveness with vengeance. And more bitterness and unforgiveness unfold. You fight it with forgiveness. And Jesus is in this moment inviting the disciples and therefore us into this cataclysmic paradigm shift, this upside-down kingdom where he says, I want you to do something radically different forgive now the disciples they weren't they they, this didn't this didn't appeal to them very much and so Jesus decides to tell a story because Jesus was kind of a long-winded preacher you know he just decided to keep going on some things amen for long-winded preachers okay Um, and this is what he begins to say he says and I want you to write this bottom line down I want you to write he begins to tell a story about this one thing there is freedom in forgiveness now, when Jesus told stories, they were called parables. And every time you see a parable, you need to ask yourself the question, what is Jesus trying to communicate here? You need to ask, who is God in this story and who am I in this story? And you're going to begin to see it unfold as we read this story and as we kind of break it apart together. Two questions we need to ask ourselves in here today. Number one is, have I experienced forgiveness? Have I experienced forgiveness? Look at what it says right here in Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. Therefore... The kingdom of God is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. And then on in verse 27, it says, the master, the servant's master took pity on him and cancel the debt and let him go. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever experienced forgiveness? Have you experienced forgiveness like this? You need to recognize that in this story, you are this servant. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you've experienced radical, upside-down forgiveness. I'll never forget the first time I realized this. I was eight years old, And I went to an Easter play. And I don't know how they operate here. I keep asking the question. It doesn't seem like in Indiana they have these. But for for whatever reason, in Alabama, they would have these plays right around Halloween called the Judgment House plays. You guys, anybody heard of this? So it was like the Christian alternative to haunted houses. Okay? Okay. So like you would take your youth group to the judgment house around Halloween instead of a haunted house and they would take you through all these rooms. And usually there was like a scene with a car wreck and half the people in there, they knew Jesus and half the people didn't have a relationship with Jesus. So they would kind of take you to the crossroads. They take you to this other room that represented hell and they'd turn up the furnace really high. and It was like a hundred degrees in there and there was the devil and it was supposed to be really scary. And then they take you to this other room and it was really like full of clouds and fluffiness and sky and it was all pretty and nice. And there was Jesus there and he'd walk around and give hugs and he'd say, welcome home. And they would kind of juxtapose these two things on purpose then take you into a room and go, which one do you want? Pray this prayer. <laughs> and as a formidable teenager, you're like, not and they're literally trying to scare the hell out of you, you know? <laughs> but I went to an Easter play that was very different. Yeah, they walked you through these different rooms in the same way, but instead of doing these scenarios that I just laid out for you, they laid out the scenarios of Jesus' life and his ministry. And for the first time, I began to be drawn to this man, Jesus. And he, he for the first time, was communicated to me as a man with compassion and love, uh, abounding in it, slow to anger. And I began to see how the people who were most unlike Jesus liked Jesus the most, that he wasn't judgmental of people. He was accepting and he was loving and he espoused these ideas of love and forgiveness and kindness toward other people. And for the first time, I felt drawn to this man. He had this contagious spirit about him. We got to the very last scene. It was in an old school sanctuary where there were pews all over. And at the top and the stage, there were three crosses with three men on the crosses. Jesus, the one representing Jesus, was in the middle. And they showed us the brutality of Jesus' suffering and how awful it was that, the, that what, what the Romans did to put Jesus on the cross and how bloody and nasty and brutal and gross it was. And in that moment, I remember thinking, what happened? How did it come to be this way? And then the scene stopped. The pastor walks out with this frozen scene and he says, Jesus was murdered for my sin and your sin. And then the scene starts back up. And you hear Jesus on the cross letting out this cry and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Now, can we just pause for a second and recognize the providential character and nature of God? Many of you know my story and the fact that my wife of seven years was murdered back in 2015. How providential of it, of God, to intersect me at eight years old and communicate in a very different way. That's a very odd way of communicating the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus was murdered because of my sin. But it was true. My sin put Jesus on the cross. Your sin put Jesus on the cross. And I remember recognizing that I was sinful. Now, at eight years old, how much sin could I have done? How much rebellion could I have had? But what I began to recognize is sin is not just something that we do. It's something that we are. We were born into this ever-increasing unraveling of the universe and the brokenness of it. And so I have this propensity to selfishness. I have this desire to have what I want when I want it. And I recognized it in that moment that my sin had created this chasm and this gap between me and God that I could never pay back. There's no way I could, no amount of Bible studies, no amount of church attendance, no amount of prayer, no amount of good deeds, no amount of helping out my neighbor could ever fill this gap between me and God. I needed somebody else to step in and be a Savior, and Jesus was that person. He paid that penalty for me on the cross, and so I went to the end of the pew, and I remember sobbing. I was so embarrassed because my friends were at the other end of the pew, and I just said, Jesus, I didn't know. I didn't know. Will you forgive me? And in that moment, I experienced the forgiveness of Jesus. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced that moment where... You invite Jesus to come in, and he forgives you of all of your past, present, and future sins. He takes all your sin, and he removes it from you as far as the east is from the west, the book of Psalms tells us. That he counts it against you no more. This sin blight that is on our hearts, he no longer sees that when he sees us because of what he did on the cross. He now sees the blood-stained cross that covers our sin. You see, that's what happened to me. And that's what Jesus is communicating about this servant. Because do you remember how much this servant owed the master? It says he owed him 10,000 talents. We gloss over that. We don't understand because we don't know what a talent is. But a talent is the equivalent of 20 years wages. So imagine 10,000 20-year wages. Anybody want to do the math on that? 200,000 years of wages that this man owed this master. Is there any way he's repaying that? No, but the master canceled it, he said, I don't even see it anymore. You can go free. The last thing Jesus said on the cross was the word tetelestai, which literally means translated from the Greek, the debt is paid in full. How amazing is that, that we can walk into that kind of forgiveness and freedom? Have you experienced that? Because if you've experienced that, it's a spiritual impossibility to experience radical forgiveness from Jesus and not also be willing to extend that radical forgiveness to others. Now, it is highly a spiritual impossibility to extend that that radical forgiveness to others if you haven't experienced it. Any effort on our own is, is mere platitudes It's trite. There's no way we can do it. We need something else, the Holy Spirit of God, to empower us to do that. But when we've experienced it, it opens up our heart and we become a conduit for forgiveness, which leads me to the second question that you have to ask yourself. Do I extend forgiveness? Do I extend forgiveness? Because in the story that Jesus tells in Matthew 18, the servant goes and he walks in freedom, and immediately he is reminded of somebody who, hurting him or a debt that somebody owes to him. It says this in um, verse 28. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So this servant had a fellow servant that hurt him. Please hear me say, it is not a question of if somebody's going to hurt you. It will happen. The question is, what will you do and how will you respond when somebody hurts you? I've said this before, I'm sure here, I, I wanna say it again. 10% of our life is what happens to us, the other 90% is what we choose to do with what happens to us. We always have agency to determine the trajectory of our life based on the response of the circumstances that come against us. And we as a culture are highly offendable, aren't we? Just get on Facebook. For whatever reason, people think that they, because they have an opinion, they can plaster that opinion on Facebook. Lots of courage behind those portals, aren't there? We are highly, we get offended over everything. And this man reflects this. He gets highly offended because this man owes him 100 denarii. Now, I don't mean to diminish what this man, the second servant, owed the first servant. 100 denarii is a pretty large amount. It's the equivalent of about $12,000. If you owed me $12,000, if I had it and I could loan it to you, right? Then after about six months to a year of no repayments, I'd probably I'd go knocking on your door and be like, hey, you, you remember? Like the, remember that? This is no small amount. I don't believe, as Jesus is telling this parable, that he's trying to in any way diminish the pain that we experience or the hurt that somebody has inflicted on us. I'm not naive to think that there is not some aggrievous and heinous things that have been done against people in this room. I don't know. I don't know what's represented here, but I've, I've, I've worked as a pastor and I've worked with people's stories long enough to realize that there are some hidden, buried, awful things that have been done to people because of this perpetuation of sin. This perpetuation of hurt. Maybe you're in here today and in your story, there is a, a, child, a childhood abuse or molestation that you're wrestling with. And you've carried that for years and years. Maybe there is a, a sexual betrayal that's taken place in your, in your marriage. Maybe there's a business partner who has embezzled money against you and left you with absolutely nothing and imploded your business, and now you're trying to figure out your livelihood. I don't know. But I do know that we've all been hurt. And it's heavy. It's no small amount. But, but can, I, can I just lean in for a second? Can I just appeal to the fact that, like, I understand? Like, not a whole lot of people can say that. My wife was murdered at the hands of three, essentially, teenagers at the time. I understand the weight of of heinous things being done to you. Uh, I don't think Jesus is trying to diminish the pain that we've experienced here. But what I think he's trying to delicately communicate to us is that the pain that we have experienced from other people pales in comparison to the pain that Jesus experienced on the cross when he absorbed the wrath of God for all of mankind. I think he's trying to help us understand that, that Jesus' demonstration of forgiveness is the only thing that can help us then bridge the gap between what has been done to us and against us. You see, when I first saw on the news the guys who now stand trial for having killed my wife, like up to that moment, like I was dealing with a lot of sadness, just a lot of intense, deep, deep grief. But when I saw their faces, immediately I experienced something I'd never experienced before in my life, I experienced a deep, dark, scary, frightening rage. I'd never experienced that before, and and honestly, it freaked me out. I mean, to be honest with you, it would have been so much easier for me, like, just to dismiss things if, like, if I hadn't seen that. I mean, isn't that how we typically respond to things that have been done to us? It's like, you know what, I'm just going to avoid them. I'm going to avoid it. If I see him in the grocery aisle or, you know, I'm going to like, I'm going to kind of go to the other aisle. If I see him in church, I'm going to go to a different service. Like, I'm just going to kind of avoid. It's fine. I'm not holding it against you. I'm just going to avoid it. The problem is, is when you bury something, it booby traps you later. The feeling buried never dies. So you've got to begin to work through this and settle this. And I thought, man, if I can just avoid it, if I don't have to see it, you know, I can work through the grief and all of this stuff. But then I saw it. I was confronted with it. And it led me into this really dark place, and I had to begin wrestling with things. And what I began to realize is, though, is that th- though my sin put Jesus on the cross, unforgiveness was going to hurt me more. Because I started feeling this cancer welling up inside of me, this, 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 this nasty festering thing of anger and bitterness, and, and it just started rotting because bitterness rots the hand that holds it. And I started going, I can't, I can't do this. Like, I can't do this. And I wanted to respond in vengeance. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I imagined in my head, like, what if, the, what if the investigators, the prosecutors, what if they just let me, like, what if they could turn their head and just let me in a room with them? What would I do? And I would come up, I would imagine it, imagine it, but that began to bring me into this really deep, dark place that I didn't like. And it was destroying me. And then Jesus subtly reminded me, Davy, I was murdered. For your sin. You, Davy, murdered me, and I chose to forgive you. Whew. Now, I know. I know the pushback. I know, like, well, does, if we forgive people, like, if we just cancel it, does that mean that, like, there's no consequences for this? It, no, no, no. It doesn't take away um, the, the, the structures of justice that we have inside of us. But what we're doing when we enter into the invitation that Jesus has for us to forgive, we are trusting him with the vengeance. Come on, don't you know that Jesus is a much better avenger than you are? Like, like he sees you. He sees your pain. He wants to right all this wrong more than you do. But he has this perspective that's bigger than all of us, and he knows how to write it. And so he invites his disciples and say, "Hey, he said, just cancel it, just like let it go." But then he goes a little bit further, and it blows my mind. In other places, Jesus says things like, um, when, "When your enemy sins against you, love your enemy." Wait, what? Love them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those that persecute you, pray for them. No, I'm I'm good, Jesus. I'm going to love them. It's like there's this weird thing that he's, he's asking us to do this upside down. What is he asking us? Well, we find out in this story that this servant responds to the man who owed him in a way that many of us respond He begins to hold the grudge. He begins to call him out on his debt. It says he grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. Sound familiar? It says, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Hmm. You see, this man, servant A, set up a prison. And he put servant B in it. You know, it kind of feels like that's what we do when we hold grudges and we hold stuff against people, isn't it? It's like we start to like, like we punish them, right? Well, I'm just—I've got this thing. I kind of it gives me power to against them. I kind of punish them by holding on to this. And what you realize is that that's like swallowing rat poison and expecting it to hurt the other person, because. Because what happens with this servant is so crazy. It says, when the other servants saw what happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant, servant A in, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all of your debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. That's heavy, isn't it? We read that and we're like, wait a minute, does that mean God's not going to forgive us if we don't forgive other people? Like, hold on a second. I think he's communicating something a little different to us in this. Um, Can I get you four to come up here? I know you guys, so you guys can come up and help me with this real quick. Oh, come on, come on, Terry, Come on. This is my friend Deja. Deja, come here. Deja did something really really um really uh really hurtful to me. This is a this is an illustration she didn't really really hurtful to me. And man, I don't I don't want to see Deja. I want to avoid her. I don't want to have anything to do with it. It's just I'm just going to kind of bury it and stuff it. And so so Deja, I'm going to have you stand right here, face me. And what I do is I put this wall between me and Deja. No, we're not going to have no. Mm-mm. I'm going to start walling off my heart and callousing myself to you. My heart is not soft to you. It's not compassionate to you. I'm holding this grudge of bitterness against you. and I'm safe here. This is safety. And then Terry comes along. Come here, Terry. I want you to stand right over here. Terry does something that kind of reminds me of what Deja did. Now, it's probably not as bad as what Deja did to me, but it pushed on a wound, an open wound that I have not dealt with. And so my heart has become hardened, but my skin is still soft because of this wound that I've not dealt with. It's not been healed. And so she pushes on that wound. I'm like, oh, wait, uh uh-uh. I take offense to that. And I start holding a grudge against Terry, too. And then Leslie comes along. Leslie, come stand over, over here. Leslie does the same thing. And so I put up a wall between me and Leslie. And then... Diana. Diana comes along, and she does the same thing. And now, in all of my relationships, I am protected. Nobody's going to hurt me anymore. But do you see what I've done? I've walled myself off into a prison of offense. You see, what's really crazy is that this, let's go back to that. In, his, in, in, in verse 34, it says, in his anger, his master handed him over To the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Well, we already know he can't pay it back, right? 200,000 years of wages. Well, we miss this sometimes because I think there was a wrong translation here. The, The phrase pay back can be translated 10 different ways. The translators here chose pay back. But there's also another way you could translate it. And that's the word "cancel." So it could read, in his anger, his masters handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should cancel all he owed. Well, how does this man cancel his own debt? He can't cancel his own debt. So that begs the question, what is that second he pronoun? What is it actually referring to? I wonder if it's not referring to servant A. I wonder if it's referring to servant B. I wonder if it should actually read, in his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured. Stop. How many of us feel tortured by the bitterness that's encased all in our heart? Until servant A should cancel all servant B owed. You see, friends, bitterness and unforgiveness only traps us in a prison. But it's a prison. That we've been given the keys to. And the key is forgiveness. Um, I'm going to invite the band to come out, or at least the, the keyboard guy to come out and help me land this. The, the thing that's been really profound for me in my story is the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliott. Have you guys ever heard the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot? You need to go and research it and read it, but I'll summarize it for you. Jim and Elizabeth were missionaries. To South America and Jim and a bunch of his missionary buddies while their wives were on the radio listening to all of this they would they would take an airplane up and they were trying to reach an unreached people group who didn't know Jesus didn't know the message of forgiveness they didn't speak the same language and so they would take an airplane up and circle and they would drop tokens of friendship down into this this tribe this people group and when they felt like there was an amicable response back to them a reciprocity they decided to land the plane where this tribe lived. And all the men got out and began to try to share the gospel, and all of them were slaughtered right there on the beach. Killed. Now, Elizabeth and all of the wives were listening to the entire thing on the radio. They heard it all. You talk about traumatic. And none of us would have blamed Elizabeth if she had said, Wow, my ministry is now somewhere else. It's like I'm gonna, I need to avoid this. But years later, Elizabeth Elliot, along with some of the other wives, went back into that same tribe and shared the gospel with that tribe and won that tribe to Jesus. Now listen, there are going to be times where what we say we believe is going to be confronted and tested with something. Someone's going to hurt us. There's going to be a wounding. And, it, and people are not won over by what we say we believe. Yeah, we believe God can forgive anybody. Nobody's too far gone. Unless you do something to me, then I can't forgive you. Like, no, they're won over by our lives. And friends, I preached this same message about 14 months before Amanda was killed. I wrote it in my office. It was awesome. Deja remembers. She was a part of the church. I, I preached this message. It was like, man, that's a great message. You can't extend forgiveness unless you experience it. When you experience it, it's this great natural extending of forgiveness. It's so great, man. That'll preach. And then my life was confronted with a situation that said, David, do you really believe that? And not just do you believe it are you going to walk in it? Because when you walk in it, you're transformed. And then the people around you get transformed. So... Um, A couple months after I met my now wife, Christy, I was having a conversation with her. And she was serving in our inner city ministry that we had started to to step in and intercept kids and teenagers before they step into a life of gang-related activity. And I asked her, like, why are you serving in this ministry? She said, well, this ministry is really, my family's passionate about this kind of ministry. And I said, well, you know, we started it because of our story, because of, you know, how my, my late wife was murdered. We want to intercept that. She said, yeah, I know, I'm very familiar with your story, but I don't think you want to know how familiar I am. I said, what what are you you talking about? She said, Davey, my stepdad is one of the chaplains for the Marion County prison system. And he has spent regular time with the three guys on trial for killing Amanda where he has shared the gospel with them in an effort to see them come into a saving, forgiving relationship with Jesus. How do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile this girl that I, for the first time since my wife is murdered, I'm interested in this girl, and then she goes and tells me that she is connected to these men who killed my wife, not just connected, her stepdad is sharing the gospel. And I felt in that moment, God going, Davy, I'm inviting you into a radical kingdom forgiveness movement. But God, I can't, I don't feel like forgiving. And the Holy Spirit whispered, Davy, forgiveness isn't a feeling. If you if you wait till you feel like forgiving, you're never gonna forgive. Forgiveness is a decision. It's a choice that you get up every day and you make. And you choose because you don't want to lock yourself in a prison. You say, you know what, Deja, the thing that you did against me, consider it canceled. I'm not gonna hold it against you anymore. I trust God with that. Hey, Leslie, the thing you did against me, consider it forgiven. I, I am not holding you against, I'm not holding that against you anymore. I'm trusting God with that, and there is freedom in life. Forgiveness. I wonder how many of us need to experience that freedom. I wonder what it would look like if we experienced forgiveness and we truly let that forgiveness flow like a conduit in and through us and in into the different places and spaces and spheres of our influence. And we forgave those people who were who, who had who had inflicted petty things against us and those people who had inflicted heinous crimes against us. How could it change? our world. You want to talk about being a good neighbor, how can we change the neighborhoods, the communities, the schools, the workplaces by just espousing this new upside-down kingdom of forgiveness. (sighs) Can we do this? Can we just can we stand together? I want to invite us into a time where we respond to this. And I just wonder as we're preparing our hearts to respond and worship, I just wonder how many in this room have never experienced the forgiving grace of Jesus that He made available to you on the cross. I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes, and with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you know today you need to experience forgiveness. You need to experience that whitewashing of your heart, the power washing of your soul, where he removes your sin and your shame and your guilt as far away from you as the East is from the West. It's not a magical concoction of words or turn of the phrase that saves you. If you just, right now, where you're at, would you just call out to God? Say, Dear Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I need you to power wash my soul. Would you forgive me of everything that I've done wrong? The ways that I've rebelled against you? The ways I've tried to do this by myself? I want to be a new person. I want a soft, tender heart. I want to to have the compassion of you. I want to have the love of you. Would you turn this heart of stone to a heart of flesh and would you change the trajectory of my life? Make me a new person. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you prayed that right there, if you called out to God, Scripture says that you are immediately forgiven. You don't have to hang on to it anymore. You don't have to drag it up again anymore. Like, Jesus doesn't even remember it. That's good news. I wonder if there's some people in here, you've experienced that before. But right now, as I'm I'm speaking, you are thinking of people who have done some things to you that you've just held on some bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart. And we're going to sing a song here in a second. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing a song. And I just want to make this a moment where we can respond. And we can lay it at the feet of Jesus. And we can trust him with making it right. We can partner with him in this upside-down kingdom that he's inviting us into. As we sing, if you feel like that you need to get something off your chest or you need some prayer, we're going to have the prayer room open. This is a moment of healing for us, friends. This is a moment of getting rid of the shackles and the strongholds that are that are tying us down and binding us up from being able to experience the fullness of what God has for us. So, Jesus, would you give us courage? Would you give us the strength to step into this? Would you give us, would you give us the eyes to see that you have forgiven us and that we can be empowered to forgive others? We can trust you with that. You're big enough to hold it. So we worship you right now. In your name we pray. Amen.